is 3, 3 through 8. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Father, your word is good and profitable, and we want to be able to speak confidently concerning what it says, particularly concerning what it says about the gospel of your son here this morning. So I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to see what's in your word so that we can speak confidently what's in your word. And God, I pray um, just very simply that you would help my voice to, um, to last my throat, uh, not to be so dry and help us uh, not to be distracted by those things, but to be able to fix our hearts on Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Many of you, uh, I'm sure, have been noticing in the last few weeks that the state of Ohio is issuing new license plates. Um, They're replacing the old, uh, in my opinion, bland red, white, and blue ones with what they're calling beautiful Ohio plates. And the new plates have in the foreground uh, an Ohio farmstead and then in the background a cityscape um, with a bridge uh, going across a river and then the Wright brothers are flying overhead. And uh, I've noticed them and thought that they're quite neat and representative, I think, and attractive uh, for our state and So when I got my renewal packet in the mail a couple of weeks ago, I determined that I would check the box marked order new plates and that I would pay the additional $11.75 and I would get the new, more eye-catching, more Ohio-like license plates. So on Thursday of this week, I got a nice license plate-sized envelope in the mail with a return address from the Ohio BMV. And so I was probably a little more excited about that than a grown man should be. But nevertheless, I came inside from the mailbox and I walked up to Toby and I peeled back the flap on the top of the envelope and said to her, check this out. And I pulled out of the envelope a brand new set of bland red, white, and blue Ohio license plates. I got new plates, just not the ones I was hoping for, new plates that look just like my old plates. And after doing a little bit of research online, I discovered that if you want the new new plates, you not only have to check the box, order new plates, but you have to specifically request the beautiful Ohio version. Otherwise, for the next few months anyway, they default to the older style. Now, as I thought about it, there must have been some sort of fine print somewhere in that renewal packet that I got in the mail. There must have been an asterisk somewhere at the bottom of the page that would have told me that I had to specifically request the newer design. But as fine print tends to do, it went unnoticed, at least by me. And now I'm stuck, at least for another year, with a new set of plates that look exactly like my old ones. 
And that got me to thinking about this message. I have no idea what the Ohio BMV's motivation is for not making the procedure for getting the newer license plates more understandable than it apparently is. I'm guessing it was just an oversight in the way that they laid out the text of their packet. But I do know that sometimes companies and government agencies put things in fine print intentionally because they know more people will sign up if they don't necessarily get all the details. And I know that it's the consumer's responsibility to read all the disclaimers and the asterisks, but none of you do that either, probably. And it still bothers me a little bit when I feel like the whole truth is not being made plain and obvious to me. It bothers me when important things are put in fine print. And the reason I say this is not because this is a sermon about government agencies or companies, of course. Rather, I use their habit of sometimes using fine print as an illustration of what it seems to me many Christians sometimes are tempted to do with the gospel. Namely, there are certain aspects of the gospel, aren't there, that are attractive to people and that we want to put on the front page. There are certain things about the good news that people like, whether they love God or not. Things like the promise of eternal life, the promise of forgiveness of sins, the fact that God loves us, and so on. People like those things, whether they like God or not. And so when we share the gospel, either in a sermon like this or maybe over a packet of ramen noodles in the break room, there are certain things, these kinds of things, that we are normally likely to highlight. But then there are other facts of the gospel message, things like repentance, and the necessity of a changed life and the reality of eternal judgment that aren't quite as popular with the people that we want to share with. And because they aren't, sometimes we're tempted to just sort of barely slip them in, almost like fine print. And other times when we share with people, we're tempted to leave certain facts out altogether from our sermons or our gospel presentations because people will more likely have a positive response, they'll more likely check the box if we simply highlight the things that we know that they want to hear. And sometimes I think we, perhaps like the BMV, don't even realize that we've left out some need-to-know information when we share with other people. But many times we may know good and well that we're neglecting or at least minimizing some portion of the good news. And the reason we do it is because we realize that on the surface, surface of things, that portion of the good news doesn't seem all that good. And whole movements of churches have grown up around precisely that theory of presenting the gospel. To save for the fine print things like the exceeding ugliness of sin and the absolute necessity of repentance and the fact that a person who is forgiven will also be a person who changes. It's easy, I say, to not bring those things out on a Sunday morning or not bring those things out when we talk to our friends, but rather hope that they'll just come up sometime somewhere along the line. And usually when we hope that they'll just come up somewhere along the line, they never do. But I want you to see over the next two Sundays that this was emphatically not the strategy of the Apostle Paul. As we read Titus 3, 3-8, we're reminded that Paul was very upfront about things like sin and the necessity of a changed life. And he told his protege, Titus, to whom this letter is written, to speak confidently, verse 8, concerning these things. And that's the phrase that I really want to latch on to today. Speak confidently 
concerning these things. What things? Well, the gospel things that he's just described in verses 3 through 8. In other words, what Paul in verse 8 is saying to his apprentice, Titus, is this. When you're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, don't deal in fine print. Don't put lots of things in the footnotes. Speak confidently. Tell them everything. Tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Give them the whole gospel. That's what Paul is saying to Titus in verse 8. What I've just told you is trustworthy. Speak it confidently. And that's what I want to say to you this morning and to myself. Speak these things confidently. Share the whole gospel with your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members. And what we're going to call that gospel that Paul was giving to Titus, that whole gospel that we need to share, we're going to call it the gospel according to Titus. That's what we really have here in verses 3 through 8, the gospel according to Titus. Now, I know Paul is the one writing these verses, so we could say it's the gospel according to Paul. He's the one who wrote this letter. But the good news that Paul presents in verses 3 through 8 was good news that he expected that Titus would also speak confidently. So it was Paul's gospel, and it was supposed to be Titus's gospel as well, the gospel according to Titus. This is what he was to preach, and it's a whole gospel, a well-rounded gospel, a forthright, complete gospel with no fine print. Now we'll see over the next several minutes that there are at least five biblical truths that Paul wanted to make sure Titus would speak confidently. There are other gospel things that we could say, and it It must be that Paul knew that Titus would speak those things confidently. But there are at least five doctrines that Paul wants Titus to emphasize. Five doctrines that Paul wants to make sure are not left out of the gospel according to Titus. And Lord willing, we're going to spend the next two Sundays looking at these five items. Now next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to play the role of Titus. Next week, I'm going to actually try and speak confidently to you the very things that Paul wanted Titus to speak confidently to the people in Crete. Next week, in other words, I'm simply going to preach to you a gospel message from Titus 3, 3 through 8. But this morning, I intend to try to play the role of Paul. In other words, this morning, what I want to do for you is what what Paul was doing for Titus in this passage. Paul is urging Titus to speak these things confidently, and this morning I want to urge you to speak these things confidently. I want to try and show you why it is so important that these truths that we just read in verses 3 through 8 must be preached, and why it's so important that we not relegate to the small print these doctrines about which in times of old preachers were accustomed to speak confidently. So in short, while I want seven days from now to play the role of Titus and actually to preach this gospel to you this week, I want, like Paul, to urge you to preach this gospel to your friends. And I want to show you this morning that it's a whole gospel and why a whole gospel is important and why we must speak even the more difficult aspects of the gospel confidently. Why you in the break room or the cafeteria or at the softball game or at the family gathering should be careful not to relegate important truth to the footnotes. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So then, consider with me this morning 
five gospel truths that you should be sharing with your friends and loved ones as the Lord gives you opportunity and why it's so important that we not merely think of them as fine print, why it's so important that we speak confidently about these things. So the gospel of Titus is, first of all, a message about our need for salvation, our need for salvation. Verse 3, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and so on. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need salvation. That's why we need good news, because we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, and so on. We're sinners, and we need the gospel. Our lives, Paul is saying, have been such as to bring judgment upon ourselves by disobeying our Creator and living for ourselves. So we deserve not heaven, but judgment. And therefore, what we really need and what the world really needs is good news. And good news, unbelievably wonderful news, is exactly what Paul has on offer in these next few verses. But what Paul was here reminding Titus is, in effect, before you can herald the good news of verses 4 and following, you have to tell them the bad news of verse 3. Before you can tell people the good news, they need to understand the bad news. And that's true in everyday life, as well as in spreading the gospel, isn't it? Before you can convince people to hustle down into the storm cellar, you have to convince them that a tornado is about to touch down. Or before you can persuade someone to undergo triple bypass surgery, you have to convince them that their life is in serious danger. And so what does the doctor do? He holds up the various scans and the chest x-rays. He gives them the charts and the graphs and the statistics. And he convinces them that they are in desperate need. Because otherwise, open heart surgery doesn't seem like a very good option, doesn't it? You can tell someone to have open heart surgery all you want, but it will fall deaf on their ears if they don't realize that they're in danger. And so it is when proclaiming the gospel. Repentance... Confession, coming clean of our sins, will never seem like great options to people. Those things will never come across as good news to a man until he's convinced that sin is really that bad. And that's what Paul is doing in verse 3. He's pulling out all the stops, listing all the different kinds of sin to remind people how bad sin really is and how pervasive sin really is. And he doesn't put sin in fine print. It's actually the first point in his outline of the good news. And so it must be in ours. The first point in Paul's gospel, in the gospel according to Titus, is our need of salvation. And from there, Paul urges Titus to go on and tell people, secondly, of the cause of our salvation. The cause of our salvation, verses 4 and 5. Paul says that if we're to be rescued from the clogged arteries of sin, if we're to be saved from the certain death that our sin brings about, it will never be because we have done something to get back into God's good graces. It will never be because we have somehow earned God's forgiveness by trying harder and doing better. What's the cause of our salvation? Well, it's nothing in us. We need surgery. We need the great physician to do something for us that we could never do ourselves. 
If we are ever to be saved, he says, it will be not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, verse 5, but according to his mercy, according, verse 4, to the kindness of God and his love for mankind. That's the good news. God saves us, not because of anything in us, but simply because he's good and kind and loving and merciful. And, of course, that's the portion of the good news that most of us want to placard before our neighbors. That's the portion of the good news that most of us are not tempted to place in fine print, and for good reason. This is all our hope and peace, that God has done something for us that we could never do ourselves, that our salvation is not because of righteous deeds that we've done, but according to his mercy. We want to say that. But, you know, there may be a few of us in this room particularly those of us who grew up in Christian circles or who've been following Jesus for a long time now. There may be a few of us, I say, who, without realizing it, tend to minimize even this point about the freeness of the gospel. There are some of us in Christian churches who, if we could listen to a recording of ourselves talking to our friends, our unbelieving friends, we would discover that we actually talk more about getting in church or reading the Bible or putting down the cigarettes or cleaning up the language or being a better this or doing better at that than we do actually about Jesus and about God's mercy. In other words, the good news, quote-unquote, that some of us end up sharing with our friends can sometimes sound exactly the opposite of Titus 3, 4, and 5 without us even realizing what we're doing we end up communicating to people that if they would clean themselves up a bit and, quote, get in church, then God would be happy with them and their lives would be better. Now, I know we'd never put that down as an answer if someone were to give us a test on the facts of the gospel. But when we actually advise and exhort our friends on religious matter, the conversation often for some of us turns towards deeds that we should be doing in righteousness and not to God's mercy and not to the cross of Jesus. In fact, you should just listen to yourself sometime and ask, when I have a chance to speak to my friends about Christianity, do I speak mainly about deeds that we should be doing in righteousness, or do I speak to them about the deeds that Jesus has done on our behalf? Do I speak to them about their manners or about God's mercy? Don't ever forget that God's mercy, not our righteousness, is the cause of our salvation. That is the message that Paul wanted Titus to speak confidently. And after explaining that, Paul urged Titus thirdly to explain to the people on the island of Crete the outworking of our salvation. Our need for salvation, the cause of our salvation, and then in verse 5b, the outworking of our salvation. In other words, in the second half of verse 5, Paul is answering this question. How does this good news of salvation from sin take effect in our lives? What happens to us? Well, Paul says in verse 4 that it happens by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy, God's saving grace comes to us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Or to summarize, rescue from sin happens as we are born again or regenerated or made new. 
And as we'll see in more detail next week, one of the first things that happens to us when we're born again, in fact, the first and primary thing that happens to us when we're born again is that we begin to embrace Jesus. We begin to believe the message about Jesus. Namely, we begin to believe that because Jesus died for us, we can really be made right with God, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, according to the deeds that Jesus has done in righteousness on our behalf. That's what happens. God makes us new and we begin to embrace Jesus by faith. But the point that Paul is is making here is that this faith in Jesus, this coming to Jesus, this being saved by Jesus is connected with being regenerated, verse 5, or renewed or born again. And what that means is that the gospel does not portray a person's coming to Jesus merely as a mental decision to start accepting as true a set of facts that up until this point we were unsure about. Let me say that again. The gospel does not portray a person's coming to Jesus merely as a mental decision to start accepting a set of facts that up until this point we were unsure about. The gospel is not just about mental assent to biblical truth. Now, yes, coming to Jesus does include mental decision-making, doesn't it? And it does include acceptance of Bible truth. But Paul is reminding us here, it's more than that. Titus 3, 5, it's more than that. The gospel portrays coming to Jesus in faith as part of a process whereby our whole souls are made new, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about in verse 5. We've been made new if we're in Christ. Our whole outlook on ourselves and on God and on Jesus and on the world does a 180 if we're in Jesus Christ. If we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit, verse 5, we come to Jesus not merely as a calculated mental acceptance of facts, but rather we come to Jesus because something deep within us has changed. We've begun to hate our sin And we begin to love and desire to know and really feel our need for Christ. So I say when a person truly comes to Jesus, it's because something new is happening in the depths of his or her soul. That's what Paul is saying. So salvation has to do not just with making a decision, but with a person being born again from the inside out. Salvation is a decision, but it's not only that. Salvation is not just a decision made. Salvation is a human soul completely remade. And that is another aspect of the good news that we are often tempted to leave only in the fine print. Why is that? Well, Maybe it's just because we're not fully aware of what we should be aware of. But often we leave this aspect of new birth in the fine print because it's a lot harder to measure success that way. In other words, how do you measure whether a person has really been made new by the Holy Spirit? How do you measure if Titus 3.5 has really happened? How can you tell if a person has had a genuine soul effort to be able to get what we want now? And sometimes that transfers over when we share the gospel. We want to be able to report as churches to the denominational offices today that X number of people have been saved in our church. But if we preach that new converts should be sensing whole new sets of desires and hungers and convictions and feelings, 
then we may have to wait a few weeks or months while those potential converts sort things out in their own hearts and make sure that this is really happening to them. Make sure that they are really following Jesus. And so, because it takes so much more time, we're prone to leave this part out about being regenerated or renewed. It's prone to put it into the footnotes so that we can quickly say, yes, you've been born again because you prayed this and now your eternity is secure forever. We don't find that method in the Bible. But Paul says this opposite method of telling people that they are being, if they're really saved, renewed, regenerated, born again. That's what we find in the Bible. And here, Paul says it belongs in that list of things about which Titus and we should speak confidently. Paul puts regeneration, renewal, right in the middle of the central teaching of the gospel. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we go to Titus 3.5 so often because it's so central to the gospel. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, period. And that's where we often stop. And, and it's not wrong just to share that part of it. But just notice that in that central centerpiece of the gospel, we're saved not by things that we've done, but according to God's mercy. The very next thing is because God's renewed us. We've been born again. Paul says this is at the center of the whole thing. So we must be willing to say to people, what I'm asking is not just that you mentally believe a few facts that God has put in his word. I'm asking that you do that. But Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. You must be regenerated, renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so this coming to Jesus has to be a whole heart turnaround, a whole life turnaround. We'll think more about the new birth more about this outworking of salvation next week. But for now, just remember that it belongs at the center of what we're looking for and what we're saying when we tell people the good news. But now, fourthly, we need to consider the foundation of our salvation. The foundation of our salvation. Verse 6. Why is God able to forgive our sins in the first place? How is it possible for sinners like us to be born again, to be regenerated, to be renewed by the Holy Spirit? Well, because the Spirit who makes us new has been poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the foundation for our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, the reason God does not judge us and instead forgives us and makes us new is because of what Jesus has done. The gift of salvation with all that it entails comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God would not forgive us had Jesus not died the death that we deserve. Had he not paid the death that we owe, we would have to pay it ourselves. And if that death sentence were still hanging over our heads, there would be no hope of new life or renewing by the Spirit, would there? None of these things would come to us without Jesus, and yet all of them have come to us through Jesus through his sinless life, lived on our behalf, through his sacrificial death, died on our behalf, through his resurrection, accomplished on our behalf, through his heavenly prayers, offered on our behalf. We have been saved. We've been forgiven. We have been made new. We have received the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And that means, of course, when we share the good news, surely we can't relegate Jesus to the fine print. Can we? 
Surely we would never do that. Or would we? I hope you wouldn't, but sometimes I've heard people share the gospel, quote unquote, share the gospel, but they speak of Jesus actually very sparingly. They talk about heaven a lot and making sure that your ticket is punched there. In fact, that's really the whole presentation. Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to go to heaven? And they, they speak of Jesus, as I say, but sparingly. In other words, it's possible to talk to people so much about heaven that Jesus becomes almost an afterthought, almost like the conductor on the train. You know, the conductor on the train, he's important, right? I mean, you can't get your ticket punched without him. You can't make it to your final destination unless he's there to do his job. But what's really important on the train is that you make it to your destination, right? It's not the conductor that's so important. It's the destination. And that may well be true if you're simply trying to get to Des Moines. But can we think of the gospel that way? Can we think that way if our final destination is heaven? Surely not. Jesus is not a mere conductor, is he? He did not come into the world merely to stamp our heavenly ticket, but also to demand our love and our worship and our allegiance. And he doesn't bring us to heaven simply so that we can be there with Aunt Mabel. He brings us to heaven so that we can fall on our faces with the angels in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and say to him, Worthy are you, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's why we want to go to heaven, to worship him. And not only that, but when our ticket to heaven was punched, it was not punched with a common everyday hole puncher, was it? When our ticket to heaven was punched, it was punched with a crown of thorns and with a Roman whip and with giant nails driven into Jesus' hands and feet. Never, ever forget that. Never, ever present the gospel as though it were more about gaining heaven or forgiveness or purpose or having your problems solved than it is about Jesus. Never speak of Jesus as though the person were merely a means to get some other reward. That's not the gospel. That's simply an appeal to man's natural selfishness, isn't it? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants their ticket punched. Everybody wants their problem solved. But that's not the question in the gospel. The question in the gospel is, do you want to trust and love and worship Jesus, who is heaven's main attraction and who is the answer to all your problems? So always make sure that you share Jesus as the foundation of our salvation and as our salvation's great reward as well. And let's look finally, fifthly, at the effects of our salvation. What does Paul say happens to a man or woman when they come to Jesus? He says three things in verses 7 and 8. First, he reminds us that in Jesus and by God's grace, verse 7a, we are justified. Justified. What does it mean to be justified? Very simply, to be declared right with God. To be acquitted of all your sins and to be treated by God as though you would lived a positively good life. Now, of course, none of us has done that. 
But since Jesus has done that, and since he's died in our place, if we will entrust ourselves to him, God says he will treat us as though we have done as well as Jesus has done. He will declare us righteous in his sight, right with himself, here and now. That's justification. And then having been declared right with God here and now, believers in Jesus also have, secondly, the certain hope of eternal life. Verse 7b, we've been justified by his grace and we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we have justification here, eternal life there. And then thirdly, Paul reminds us that those who have believed God, verse 8, will be the kind of people who are careful to engage in good deeds. Christians are justified They have a home in heaven and they are careful to engage in good deeds. Now, mind you, we're not saved by our good deeds. Remember verse 5? We're saved by God's mercy who sent Jesus to live and die and live again in our place. So our good deeds in verse 8 are not the cause of our salvation. But what Paul is saying in verse 8 is that good deeds are the result of our salvation. That is, once we've believed... Once we have come to Christ and been declared right with God, our lives will continue to change and grow so that good deeds become more and more characteristic of who we are. So when we believe on Christ, we're justified, declared right with God, verse 7a. We gain the hope of eternal life, verse 7b. And we begin then afterward to engage in good deeds in verse 8. And any one of those gospel truths might be left out or marginalized when we try to share the good news with our friends and neighbors. But which of those three truths do you think we're most likely to forget or to avoid or save for the fine print? For me, anyway, it would probably be the truth about good deeds in verse 8. People want to hear about heaven. They want to hear that they're justified before God. But it's a little bit more difficult to tell them no. But if that happens, then your life's going to have to change. And so we tend maybe to leave verse 8 out of our presentations. Perhaps it's because we're afraid that our friends will get confused and think that the good deeds are the cause of their salvation and not the result of it. And so we have to be careful to parse that out correctly. But sometimes we may leave verse 8 out of our gospel presentations because people might be more likely to pray the prayer if there seem to be no future strings attached. But somehow... However it is and whyever it is, we aren't always the best at informing potential new believers that if they will trust in Jesus, their lives will surely have to change. But life change is a part of the gospel according to Titus, isn't it? Good deeds, while they are not the foundation of Paul's gospel, are the fruit of it. Good deeds are part of the message. They were part of the message that Titus was to speak with all confidence. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid of telling our neighbors that while they will never be saved because of their good deeds, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, they will be saved if they are saved for good deeds, Ephesians 2, 10. Not as a result of good deeds, but for good deeds. Now, let me ask you a question. I try to draw these things uh, to an application point. And this question is not intended to be critical, but it's rather to help make a point and help you apply what we've been hearing. 
The question is this. Why does our denomination have 16 million members in it and only 5 or 6 million in church on a given Sunday? That's the question that our denomination actually in its meetings has been asking recently. Why do we have 16 million members and only 5 or 6 million in church on a day like today? I'll guarantee you that it's not because there are 10 million genuinely born-again Christians walking around out there who just don't really enjoy going to church and being with God's people on Sundays. That's not it. The reason why our denomination and so many others have millions and millions of missing members is because most of those millions aren't really Christians. And you may ask, well, how do they get to be church members if they're not really Christians? Good question. And I submit to you that at least part of the answer is that those of us who are really Christians, and especially us preachers, have a terrible habit of presenting good news, the good news about Jesus, a little bit like the good folks at the BMV are presenting the good news about their new license plates. Namely, we have a terrible habit of relegating some very necessary information to the fine print. Sometimes I think it's because a lack of because of a lack of careful thinking and precision on our part. And sometimes again especially speaking for church leaders it's a lust for more and more numbers that causes us to set parts of the gospel aside or to minimize them. But whatever the reason we preachers in America have not done a good job for the last 50 years of giving out the whole gospel. The gospel of life change the gospel that is far more about Jesus than it is about heaven, the gospel that says you must be born again, the gospel that's not afraid to call sin, sin, the gospel that not, does not look just to make decisions but looks to make disciples. And it's incredibly dangerous to preach this way. Whether you're a full-time preacher or whether you're doing it in your neighborhood or at work. It's incredibly dangerous not to give people the whole gospel. For if, for instance, we preach a gospel that's light on its declaration of sin, then we will have people accepting Jesus without ever repenting. Or if we preach a gospel that's mostly about heaven, then we will get people signing up to go, many of whom wouldn't be all that upset if they never saw Jesus there. They just want the reward at the end of the rainbow. Or if we fail to show people that faith is more than just a mental assent to a few biblical facts, then we will have people who grew up their whole lives in church and who don't know what else to think but that the whole Bible is true. Of course I believe these things. But they have no real desire for Jesus, no relish for holiness, no warmth in their heart toward the things of God, no heart level faith. And often they don't realize that anything's wrong with them because we haven't given them enough information. They thought that faith was simply accepting the facts. That list of examples could go on and on, but the bottom line is this. When we present an almost gospel, it usually leaves us with almost Christians. When we present an almost gospel, it usually leaves us with almost Christians. And I say again, The problem is that we often leave important gospel truth in such small typeface that many people come to church week after week and never see it. 
So we get them somewhere along the line to check the appropriate box. But then as time goes by, we watch these new converts and we start to realize that the license plate confusion is happening all over again. They checked the right box. They filled out all the paperwork. Everything seemed fine, but they never read the fine print. They never heard the whole gospel. And so when we go to open the envelope of their lives a few weeks or months down the road, eagerly expecting to find something new and different inside the envelope, we open it and what we find instead is the exact same person that we began with. And you know what's so bad about all that? Not just that church roster numbers get all out of whack, but that millions of people in our country think that they're saved because some church or pastor or Christian friend got them to check a box or pray a prayer or walk an aisle without making sure that they read the fine print. Indeed, those people are walking around deceived this morning because some church or pastor or Christian friend treated some essential part of the gospel as fine print in the first place. There's no fine print in the gospel. All of it, it was important. And just to give you a personal illustration, I can see in my mind's eye this morning faces of people in Mississippi to whom I once preached a gospel with far too much fine print. People who listened to me preach and who made professions of faith that were shallow and uninformed and whom I subsequently baptized, but who proved to be merely almost Christians because I had presented to them an almost gospel. And many of them probably still think that all is well with their souls because Pastor Court baptized me back in 2001. I know I'm okay. And oh, how I wish I could go back and make that right. I wish I hadn't been so ignorant with and careless with the gospel. And I hope that someone has come along and completed the job that I left only half done. So my exhortation to you is, let's not make those same mistakes in Cincinnati. Let's make sure that we understand and share with our neighbors and co-workers and children and visitors to our church the whole gospel. Yes, some of it is difficult to swallow at first, but if we put all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, then the picture that comes out is actually really good. So don't be afraid to share it all. It's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And would you pray for me that I will be faithful to get it right and to get it all? And would you commit yourself to learning the gospel, the whole gospel, and being unashamed of it yourself? This is a trustworthy statement, this gospel. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently.